Hometown Ghost Stories contains serious and often distressing events and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This week on Hometown Ghost Stories. The year was 1888, and a string of gruesome murders would shock the entire world. Jack the Ripper would become one of the most infamous serial killers in history. But what many don't know is the long history of hauntings that followed these brutal killings. From the Canonical Five to the ghost of Jack the Ripper himself, we dive into the history, the hauntings, and the suspects of Jack the Ripper. This is episode number 84 of Hometown Ghost Stories, Jack the Ripper and the Ghosts of Whitechapel. Friday, November 9th, 1888, East London. Paul woke late to the sound of his dog, Rusty, barking at the foot of his bed. He squinted through heavy eyelids at the clock hanging crooked on his yellowing apartment wall. Half past ten in the morning. He'd overslept again and was likely to get an earful from his boss. He cursed as he pulled on his boots and headed for the door, not even bothering to tuck in his shirt. He scrambled up the stairs to the door to the street, taking two steps at a time, Rusty following close behind, as always. He flung the door open and stepped onto the sidewalk, breathing in the familiar, damp London air. As he hurried down Dorset Street, he began coming up with possible excuses to give to his boss when he arrived to work. Mum was sick, had to bring her to the doctor. Used that one yesterday dog was sick. Had to clean a mess he left. He glanced down at Rusty, who was happily prancing along beside him. That wouldn't fly either. He pulled his pocket watch out from his jacket and looked down at it. Before he had a chance to get a proper read of the time, he collided with a woman who carelessly wandered out of Miller's court. Sorry, ma'am, he said, catching her elbow before she spilled onto the cobblestone. She didn't say anything just stared vaguely in his general direction, but seemingly not distinctly focused on anything. Paul recognized her just then. Mary Jane, he said. What are you doing out at this hour, he asked. Rusty began growling uncharacteristically and took a defensive stance against Paul's leg. Paul shook him off. Now Mary focused her gaze on him and smirked vaguely. Her skin was pale and lips dry and cracked. She looked like hell. This hour, or... She began to ask, but trailed off as the focus of her gaze seemed to wander again. My throat hurts, she added, looking up into the dense fog that hung low in the sky that morning. All right, Mary, I'm I'm late for work. I'll see you around, he said as he walked on, leaving her standing on the sidewalk in an apparent drunken daze. Paul eventually got to work, where he did in fact receive an earful from his boss, and the day dragged on worse than usual. It was dark out when he finally punched his time card and headed out to the pub for his usual nightcap. 
He ordered his pint and grabbed the newspaper. It was today's paper, November 9th. The image on the front page sent a chill down his spine. The headline read, Jack the Ripper claims fifth victim. Woman brutally hacked to death. And pictured was Mary Jane Kelly, the woman he'd seen that morning. Paul stood from his bar stool and signaled to the bartender. When was this, Paul asked. The bartender looked grim. Ripper got Mary this morning, before the sun came up. Bloody shame, he said, and went back to cleaning his glass. Paul felt his blood run cold as he sat back on his stool. He was certain he spoke to Mary that morning, but it was hours after she'd been murdered. He shook his head. It couldn't have been, but it must have been her ghost. I'm Dave Wilkins, and this is Hometown Ghost Stories, Jack the Ripper and the Ghosts of Whitechapel. Late at night, down Durward Street, which used to be Buck's Row, you come across a phantom light, a disembodied glow. Huddled in the alleyway, or up against a post, the figure lurking in the dark is Polly Nichols' ghost. Whitechapel, London, England, August 31st, 1888. Robert Paul is walking down Buck's Row as something catches his attention. A man is standing in the road, staring towards something. Robert looks over and can't quite make it out. The other man, Charles Allen Cross, waves him down to come look at what he sees with him. As they approach, they realize it's the body of a woman. They quickly scurry off to find a police officer and informed him of what they had found. As the men talked to Officer Jonas Misen, Cross said, quote, she looks to either be dead or drunk, but for my part, I believe she's dead. End quote. Instead of accompanying the officer to the body, both men headed to work as they didn't want to be late. In the meantime, Officer John Thane had come across the body with his lantern and saw that the woman's throat had been cut all the way to the spine. The woman would later be identified as Mary Ann Nichols. She had been dead no longer than 30 minutes upon discovery. When brought to the coroner for examination, her abdomen had been cut so severely and mutilated that her bowels were protruding through the cuts. The city was mortified. Although considered the first Jack the Ripper killing, this was the third murder in a series of killings later referred to as the Whitechapel murders, of which five are attributed to Jack the Ripper. People were on edge. After the brutal slaying of Polly Nichols in the area of Whitechapel, known as Bucks Row at the time, locals claimed to witness unusual activity in the area where the murder occurred. The famous author, Elliot O'Donnell, described seeing a huddled figure on Durward Street lying in the gutter. But when approached, it would disappear. The odd thing is that at the time, there were no streetlights, and the streets at night would be pitch black. The huddled figure was only visible due to the faint light that inexplicably emitted from the apparition before it vanished. On Hanbury Street, the ghost of Annie Chapman still resides, but not alone, a shadow man stalks hatefully behind. 
How they'll fare, a spectral pair, an otherworldly sight. Though never seen, her ghostly screams are heard throughout the night. A group of tradesmen would form the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee to set up patrols to help keep the area safe. It would not work. At 5.15 a.m. on September 8, 1888, Albert Cottish went outside to relieve himself. He heard a woman cry out, No, no, before hearing something or someone fall against the fence dividing 27 and 29 Hanbury Street. He did not attempt to investigate. 45 minutes later, the dead body of Annie Chapman would be discovered. Annie's throat had been cut to near decapitation as well, and her body was even more mutilated than Marianne Nichols. She had been disemboweled, and her intestines were removed and placed over her shoulder. On top of all this, part of her bladder and uterus had been taken. The killer once again left no clues as to his identity at the scene. The ghost of Annie Chapman is said to be the most active of them all. Her apparition has been spotted on numerous occasions in the area where she was murdered on Hanbury Street. In the 20th century, a man named Mr. Chapman, unrelated to the victim, lived at 29 Hanbury, the address where the murder took place. Over the course of the several years he lived there, particularly in the early morning hours during the autumn months, he would witness a man and a woman walking along the street just before disappearing into thin air. On one occasion, in the 1930s, a man was walking down Hanbury Street early one morning before the sun came up. As he passed the area where Annie Chapman was murdered nearly half a century prior, he heard what he described as the sound of a screaming woman being murdered. He rushed towards the sound in hopes of stopping the crime. The screams grew louder as he approached, but as he turned the corner to where the screams were coming from, to his shock, he found nothing there. There have also been reports of a headless phantom, but these sightings have ceased since 29 Hanbury has been demolished. That wasn't the end of the haunting, however. To this day, workers in the Truman Brewery building that now stands there experience a strange chill in the air on the anniversary of Annie's death. At this point, newspapers were referring to the murderer as either Red Fiend, the Whitechapel murderer, or Leather Apron. But a letter would soon change all that. Commonly, it is referred to as the Dear Boss letter. The letter read as this. Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about Leather Apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them till I get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue, and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly. Wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. 
The police wouldn't have to wait long for the self-appointed Jack the Ripper to strike after the letter was sent. A dismal night in late September, a double homicide. They found the bodies of Catherine Eddowes and long Elizabeth Stride. Through a foggy veneer, her ghost appears in the gutter lying dead. But if you dare visit Mitre Square, you'll find it glowing red. On September 30th, 1888, around 1 a.m., Louis Daimschutz was driving his cart when his horse abruptly pulled to the left to avoid something in the road. After striking a match, he saw the prone body of a woman laying on the ground. The woman was Elizabeth Stride, also known as Long Liz to the people around Whitechapel. Her throat had been cut like the other two Ripper victims, but her body for the most part was intact. The general theory as to why this was is because Lewis had disturbed Jack the Ripper during the murder. However, Jack wouldn't go far. Catherine Eddowes was released from the police station around 1 a.m. after being picked up for being too intoxicated. At 1.35 a.m., three witnesses saw Catherine talking to a man by a church. At 1.44 a.m., police officer Edward Watkins would come across her dead body. The mutilation this time had escalated. Her throat had been slashed to the bone like the other victims. The intestines were also thrown over her body. This time, the face was cut up and the nose sliced off, and one of her kidneys was also missing. Catherine Eddowes and Elizabeth Stride, although killed on the same night, the crimes happened in different places. Long Liz Stride was killed on Burner Street in Whitechapel, and reports claim witnesses heard her screams but didn't come to her aid. To this day, her disembodied screams can be heard echoing through the night. Catherine Eddowes' ghost has been sighted on the border to the East End in Mitre Square. Every year on the anniversary of her death, reports of a mutilated corpse lying in the gutter come in, although there's never anything there. The apparition simply disappears. The old cobblestones are gone now, and the area renovated. But on the anniversary of the murder, the corner where the vicious acts took place has been said to glow red. On October 16th, the president of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, George Lusk, would receive a letter titled From Hell. Even more terrifying was what came with it. A human kidney. The letter read as follows. From Hell. Mr. Lusk, sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate it. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a little while longer. Signed, Catch Me When You Can, Mr. Lusk. On Miller's Court, a gruesome scene on a cold November morning. For the final time, the Ripper struck and killed without a warning. The following day, witnesses say they spoke with her, they remark. It couldn't be Mary Kelly they saw, but a phantom in the dark. Things would go quiet for a bit with Jack the Ripper until the night of November 9th, 1888. Mary Jane Kelly was a lady of the evening, like all of the other victims of Jack the Ripper. Yet, we know much less about her history than the other victims. Mary was seen talking with a man at 2.30 a.m. and bringing him back to her room at 13 Miller's Court. She was heard singing the song, A Violet from My Mother's Grave, that early morning. 
some of the lyrics to the song are, But now all is silent around the good old home. They all have left me in sorrow here to roam. But while life does remain, a memoriam I will retain. This small violet I plucked from my mother's grave. Almost a chilling foretelling of what was to come. At around 3.30 a.m., a neighbor would hear a woman cry, Oh, murder, but think nothing of it and ignore it. The next morning, a rent collector came to Mary's room. When she didn't answer the door, he looked through the window and saw her mangled dead body laying on the bed. Police came to the grisly scene, and it was the worst one yet. Many believe that Jack the Ripper being indoors gave him more time to fulfill what he had wanted to do all along. Her face was sliced beyond recognition. Her insides were taken out and strewn about, as well as various body parts being cut off and placed around the body. And like the other victims, her throat was cut to near decapitation. Jack once again left no clues behind, and Mary Jane Kelly is considered the last canonical victim for Jack the Ripper. In the days following the murder of Mary Jane Kelly, several witnesses claimed to have spoken with her in person in the hours after her death. Obviously, they couldn't have spoken with her in person because she was dead at the time they claimed to have seen her, so that leaves two possibilities. Either they were mistaken, or they had witnessed her ghost. Mary had been seen in the Ten Bells pub the night before she was murdered. In the months following her death, the ghost had been spotted numerous times entering and exiting the building. The Ten Bells still stands today, and occasional reports of Mary Jane's ghost still come in from time to time. Adjacent to the Ten Bells pub is Christchurch Spitalfields, designed by Nicholas Hawksmoor. Each of the Ripper's victims and the murderer himself have looked at this building on a daily basis. Hawksmoor's buildings have become famous for their pagan symbols and their connections to mystery and crime. There have also been ghost sightings at Christchurch and the other Hawksmoor churches. The Westminster Bridge is located in London and crosses the River Thames. The legend states that Jack the Ripper killed himself there on New Year's Eve in 1888. Many people since then have claimed to see a figure emerge from the shadows and throw itself into the dark waters below. There's a true story behind that. Ripper suspect Montague John Druitt drowned in the River Thames. Montague John Druitt was first mentioned as a likely suspect for the Whitechapel murders in 1894 by Chief Constable Melville McNaughton. In the cellar of White Hart Pub on Whitechapel High Street, a medium once sensed the presence of a man who had a lot of hatred in women, and the name George was detected by the medium. George is believed to be George Chapman, a barber who became infamous for poisoning three of his wives. Some believe he may have been Jack the Ripper. Sights of cloaked shadow figures have been spotted near many of the Ripper's crime scenes over the years since the murders, and many consider these sightings to be that of Jack the Ripper. Between 1888 and 1891, London police interviewed over 2,000 people, investigating 300 and detaining 80 suspects in a desperate attempt to track down Jack the Ripper. Police narrowed it down to a handful of likely suspects, but were never able to gather enough evidence to formally charge anybody with the murders of the Canonical Five. 
Sir Charles Warren, the head of the Metropolitan Police, appointed the newly promoted inspector, Frederick Aberline, to lead the investigation in September of 1888. Aberline already had an established presence in Whitechapel. In the early days of the investigation, Police Sergeant William Thick believed that John Pizer, aka Leather Apron, was Jack the Ripper. However, John had alibis for the first two murders and he would later be released. Pizer would go on to successfully sue at least one of the newspapers that reported on him being the Ripper. At least one London detective was convinced that Montague John Druitt was Jack the Ripper. Many experts believe that the murderer was a Whitechapel local. Druitt lived just a few miles from Whitechapel and was seen in the area around the time of the murders. Druitt was an Oxford-educated man and his family was fairly well off. Three weeks after the brutal murder of Mary Jane Kelly, Montague John Druitt's body was found floating in the Thames River. His death would be ruled a suicide and his body had likely been there for several weeks. Experts believe that the sheer brutality of Mary Jane Kelly's murder would lead anybody to a complete mental breakdown and potential suicide. Aberline would dismiss him as a suspect, since the only real evidence connecting him to the crimes was the fact that he committed suicide shortly after the final kill. In 1894, a man named Carl Feigenbaum rented out a room in New York. This was roughly three weeks after Jack the Ripper's final kill. Mrs. Juliana Hoffman lived above a shop at 544 East 6th Street with her 16-year-old son Michael. Feigenbaum told the Hoffmans that he used to be a gardener but had lost his job and had no money. However, he had work lined up as a florist, and once he was paid, he would be able to afford the rent that he owed. Mrs. Hoffman took him at his word, and this would be a fatal mistake. Juliana and her son shared one of the two rooms in the apartment while Carl was renting out the other room. On September 1st, 1894, Michael was awoken by his mother screaming. Carl was leaning over her, holding a knife. Michael jumped out of a window and began screaming for help. He watched in horror through the window as Carl stabbed his mother in the neck. She managed to get to her feet, but collapsed and died from her injuries. Feigenbaum escaped through a window and made his way into an alleyway that led to a street, but was quickly caught and arrested. It turns out Carl Feigenbaum was not his real name, and he was actually Anton Lahn. He was found guilty of the murders and was executed on April 27, 1896. Shortly before his execution, Anton confessed to his lawyer that he was, in fact, Jack the Ripper. Articles about his confession began appearing in British newspapers. Lloyd's Weekly newspaper published a more detailed account of the confession. Quote, I have for years suffered from a singular disease, which includes all absorbing passion. This passion manifests itself in a desire to kill and mutilate the woman who falls in my way. At such times, I am unable to control myself. Records prove that Anton was in fact working in Whitechapel on every single date of the five murders in London's East End, and his co-workers were often seen in the nearby brothels. Sarowen Klazowski, aka George Chapman, no relation to Anna Chapman, was born in 1865 and immigrated to England between 1887 and 1888. He also lived in Whitechapel. He worked under the name Ludwig Schlosky as a barber. While he ended up as a suspect as Jack the Ripper, he was certainly guilty of murder in at least three cases. Chapman would kill three of his wives by poisoning them to death, earning himself the nickname the Burrow Poisoner. Inspector Aberline believed that he was a strong suspect as Jack the Ripper, but many find this unlikely since serial killers don't typically change their MO. Chapman was hanged for his crimes on April 7th, 1903. 
Former Chief Inspector Donald Swanson, as well as Sir Melville McNaughton, believed that a man named Aaron Kosminski was Jack the Ripper. He was Jewish and was working as a hairdresser in Whitechapel during the time of the Ripper murders. While some sources say that he was out of work at the time, he was in fact in and out of mental asylums. According to case notes, he was a paranoid schizophrenic and had homicidal tendencies. He also apparently hated women. One eyewitness immediately identified Kosminski as the Ripper. According to author Russell Edwards, his DNA was allegedly found on Catherine Eddowes' shawl. However, the evidence has been widely criticized, and according to the Journal of Forensic Sciences during their 2019 study, there was no evidence linking his DNA to the shawl, which had been openly handled by loads of people. Aaron died in 1919 at a London mental institution. Patricia Cornwall, author of the book Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper, Case Closed, suggests that Walter Richard Sickert was Jack the Ripper. She claimed to have found DNA evidence that linked Sickert to at least one of Jack's letters. Sickert was born in Germany in 1860 and moved to London with his family in 1869. He was an artist who sometimes painted prostitutes. People started noticing that his paintings may have included some clues to the Ripper murders. Some of these clues were so similar to the actual crime scenes that many think that only the true murderer could have painted them. Experts believe that Jack the Ripper had some sort of impotence problem, like many other serial killers, which was why he targeted sex workers so violently. After many surgeries, Patricia believes that Walter most likely suffered from the same condition. However, Walter's first wife divorced him, citing adultery in her petition for divorce. He also had several mistresses and fathered at least one illegitimate child. Cornwell claims to have found mitochondrial DNA on the Ripper's letters, which were a match to some of the letters written by Sickert. However, this mitochondrial DNA could be shared by anywhere between 1-10% to of the population, so this wasn't exactly unique to Sickert. According to a number of letters from family members, Walter may not have even been in the area during the Ripper murders. He also may not have even been in the country. These letters suggest that he was in France during these crimes. In 1992, a man named Michael Barrett came forward with a diary supposedly written by a guy named James Maybrick. A large chunk of pages were missing from the diary, but what was left appeared to be a detailed confession from Jack the Ripper himself. The media went into a frenzy over Jack the Ripper's diary, many claiming that it was a hoax and many sold on its validity. James Maybrick was a cotton merchant who died in 1889. His wife, Florence, was arrested and charged with murdering him by poisoning him with arsenic. In this diary, James detailed the reasons that he started killing. The main reason was that he had found his wife cheating on him, which sent him into a murderous rampage. Chromatography determined that the notebook itself was in fact Victorian, and forensic evidence showed that the ink that was used on this diary was available at the time of the killings. The handwriting, however, was not a match to any of the Ripper letters, despite the fact that in the diary, James admitted to writing at least the Dear Boss letters. Experts say that whoever wrote these Dear Boss letters was likely American, or at least spent some time in America, which is why they used some phrases that were more common in the United States. James Maybrick did do a lot of business in the United States and even lived there for a period of time, so that checks out. In the diary, James described events and crime scene details that would have been impossible for anyone but the killer to know until around 1987 when more of these details became widely available. So the diary was either written in 1888 or it's a fake and was written sometime after 1987. In January of 1995, Michael Barrett would actually confess to writing this diary himself, claiming that the whole thing was in fact a hoax, but he would immediately retract the statement. And the crime scene photo of Mary Kelly, scrawled on the wall, 
were the initials FM written in Mary's blood. In his journal, James wrote that clues were right in front of the police's eyes, but they were too dumb to see it. The initials FM could have stood for Florence Maybrick, James' wife. But the story doesn't even end there. In June of 1993, a collector came forward with another piece of evidence, Jack the Ripper's watch. On the inside of this watch, the initials of Jack the Ripper's victims were scratched into the gold, together with the signature, J. Maybrick, as well as the words, I am Jack. Experts at the University of Manchester and Bristol University concluded that these scratches were not fresh and in fact could have been made around the time of the killings. Microscopic pieces of copper were found embedded in these scratches, left behind from the tool that were used to make the engravings. Was this Jack the Ripper's watch or a massive coincidence? The Maybrick theory divides Ripperologists, but if this diary and the watch are authentic, we have our Ripper. The stormy black waters of the Thames River hold a secret never to tell. What lies at the bottom is the end of a story beneath its murky swell. The Ripper leapt from the bridge above into the icy depths he fell, until the night when his ghost returns from the fiery depths of hell. Gentlemen, welcome into Hometown Ghost Stories, episode number 84. I'm Jesse Wilkins. I'm joined by Rob Coakley. Hello, Rob. Man, I'm excited to do this episode. It has everything that we like to talk about, right? We have a mystery for a serial killer. We have ghosts. We have some brutal slayings. We have Dave, I guess. Yeah, We do have Dave. What's going on, Dave? What's up? We have um, suspects. We have conspiracy. We do. I can't wait to tell you guys who the killer is at the end of this when we start cool. talking about the suspects. Tell us I've that. solved it. I can't wait to be wrong. I flew to London this week. I'll tell you when we get to that part. I got to build the suspense. Do you know how to do a show? It's called, <laughs> it's called building suspense, drawing the audience in, then dropping the bombshell of who Jack the Ripper was. Hmm. So, a little bit of a curveball from us this week. We were going to be talking about Japan, we'll be going to Japan next week. Um, not physically. That is a far trip that I do want to take one day. But we're going to be doing, obviously, Jack the Ripper this week. And again, there's so much to talk about. So I hope everyone's ready to sit here for the next six hours as we <laughs> turn into Charlie from It's Always Sunny. And we bring out our boards and we get bloodshot eyes and we start screaming at each other about what actually happened. I'm ready. Is, I'm, I'm, ready for that. <laughs> I'm definitely ready for that. I do want to say what's up to everyone hanging out in live chat. Everyone that... uh that joined in on the Patreon pre-show hangout, which was on Discord for the first time. So if you haven't already joined the Discord and joined the Patreon, you can become part of that. We had a whole lot of work done on this episode. A whole lot of effort went into this. Obviously, we collabed on this one. And it's one that obviously we've we've been looking to cover for a long time. It's a huge mystery. I didn't really know about the hauntings until we started jumping into it. And Dave was like, there's actually a ton of them. I was like, oh, hell yeah. So we got ghost stories and we got one of the biggest unsolved crimes 
in at least all of London, arguably in all the world. And I think it all comes down to the credit given to whoever wrote that Dear Boss letter, which signed it Jack the Ripper and gave him such a creepy and fitting nickname. It's got to be the the biggest unsolved crime, or at least the most famous or infamous, if you will, right, ever? I would say definitely the most infamous. I mean, I'm sure that there are more... I mean, if you look at the Velisca axe murders, obviously, if, if we string that all to one guy, that's a bigger unsolved crime. No, and I don't mean bigger in like as like mo- like as far as numbers go. I mean bigger like there's name a more famous one than Jack the Ripper. Well, because he was kind of the first, right? Like in terms of like getting media publicity, this is when the media really latched onto this. They really started talking about the serial killer. They were reporting on it. Everybody was on edge, but everyone also wanted to hear about it so newspapers were being sold there's the the point where we start talking about the the double event where people were running from one body to the next to see it once they heard you know it's like this mass hysteria that had just never really been encapsulated before with any other killing so the body count probably only five but again the first worldwide reported on serial killer this was getting covered in the united states it was getting covered in other countries so yeah the body count you're like five it's like i mean it's a lot of people it sucks it's terrible but we have covered people that that definitely had taken more lives one of the suspects that we're going to talk about had definitely taken more lives so it's just it's the name it's the mystery and it's the first it was the first prolific serial killer, really. Yeah, and it was definitely the first one where the media realized, like, oh, we can make money off this. People right. are eating this stuff up. So it was one that the media definitely picked up and ran with. And it was kind of like your first true crime craze ever. Right. That's true. But you definitely have a big a big part of this case was definitely newspapers trying to sell newspapers, and some of them paid the price. I mean, uh, if we looked at Leather Apron, he actually went out and and sued several news agencies for reporting on him as Jack the Ripper. And he won at least one of those cases. So the whole leather, the whole leather apron thing was, was basically just anti-Semitic propaganda. In that time, there was a huge anti-Semitism problem that the media just took and exploited. And that's what that was all about. Cause they were, they're pumping up this big, like everyone's afraid of Jewish people and everyone's afraid of, it's all like, it was this this big fear mongering thing, and they they're like, we can take this and make it a Jewish thing, and everyone's going to run with it. So that mm-hmm. was kind of what that was all about. It but there was some basis to it because he was actually terrifying the girls and shaking them down for some of their money. So they there was like a base behind this accusation for who the women of the of East London were referring to as leather apron. Right. For that, in, for that individual. Right. But right. the way the media took it and preyed on people's um, irrational fear of, yeah. uh, I can't think of the word, but the, um, but yeah, they, they basically exploited the, uh, that whole anti-Semitic thing that was going on over there. Oh, right. But I, I do think he was a legitimate suspect to, to start things off because whether or not it was just an anti-Semitism thing or whatever, they had, he had a track record of beating up prostitutes or we'll say we're going to use the word prostitute in this stream. It's going to slip out because that's that's what's going to happen. But uh, what's the correct term? Sex worker. Sex worker. So, so for he was threatening them. They, they, several of them had reported that he had threatened them to carve them up, quote unquote. And the other thing that they had against him was, I mean, they just immediately thought it was him. As soon as this killing happened, all of the all of the local sex workers were like, "Yeah, that that's definitely it's got to be leather apron." So, 
Rachel B says, what if it's an early mob style murder? This is one that I I had a theory of this when we talked about the uh, Cleveland torso killer there. And Rob's had a pretty good point or a counterpoint to that, which was why would the mafia be going around killing sex workers? There's no real reason for them to be doing that. So that's not right. It doesn't, well, I it think what that was born from was it was more like they, they were pimps and they were just shaking these working girls down. And that's why they had the police had initially thought that it was that this this was who was doing the first couple killings. And then it obviously evolved from there. I do want to get to this question, which we can kind of get this theory out of the way first. Uh, Miss Bunny TTV, who is a new follower, she says, uh, I have a question. Did you guys hear that people were speculating that Jack the Ripper was a woman? What are your thoughts? They do have that theory. I don't think there's a lot of evidence to support it, but they think that it could have been a few people. But when I looked at some of the some of the suspects that they had, it, it didn't really add up. So the theory is, I mean, like they could have earned the trust of women easier, but I, I even dealt that one because these are, these are sex workers and they're, you know, trying to find men. So it's, it's not like your regular encounter with, you know, just a random woman greeting a woman, but there is the Jill the Ripper theory. One of the theories was that it was a midwife that was going around killing these women, which I don't understand the motive there, but take put that aside. These women were like scrape, scrounging together money so they could try and stay one extra day in these workhouses. And they a lot of times they barely had enough money for that. Like, I don't think any of them are, are affording a midwife to have on retainer. Yeah, but, there's that. I mean, the, the theory that it was that it was a midwife was or that she could have been a midwife was number one. She would have anatomical knowledge, which a lot of experts believe that Jack the Ripper had. That's how he was able to basically do surgery super fast and in without any kind of light whatsoever besides maybe a lantern. So he was able to do this in the dark, making precise cuts to remove certain organs without damaging other ones that he wanted to. The other thing was a midwife at that time would likely be covered in blood. So if she had just committed a kill and she was covered in blood, she could just be like, well, I'm a midwife, this happens. And it wouldn't raise any suspicion. But that yeah, was the same for everyone over there at that time. Not that they're all midwives, but like one of the main occupations for this area was slaughterhouse. So everyone was just walking around the streets pretty much at all times covered in blood, which might've been one of the reasons it was so hard to find a suspect or nail down a suspect because everyone was just walking around covered in blood for the, for the most part. Yeah. And we are, we are going to cover all the suspects and everything, but I think the way we need to do this, is we just need to start at the beginning. We need to talk about what was going on in Whitechapel at the time. We need to talk about some of these cases because people were were up in arms immediately because, you know, they the first canonical killing wasn't actually the first killing that happened at Whitechapel. There was there was murders that happened before, and some people try to tie Jack the Ripper to those ones. I think one of them could be legitimate. The other one, not so much though. There there was a murder at the beginning of the year where it was a gang that killed a that killed one of the the women of the night. And basically they were doing it as a robbery. They were doing it to rob her. It was very much like documented and like there was witnesses for this one. The second one though, there was no witnesses and she was stabbed 36 times or somewhere around that number. I can't remember the exact number, but it was, it was high thirties where she was stabbed and she's not always considered a canonical victim. Generally she's not. And I understand why the, the, the actual killing is different. 36 times is, is brutal, right? Like that is, 
that's a high number. That's a brutal killing, but it wasn't as brutal as what Jack the Ripper was doing. And I wonder if this was just kind of a dipping his toes into the water situation, just getting the feel for it and then understanding the MO that he wanted to go for. Yeah, it seemed like they definitely the murders definitely increased in intensity the further along he went, with the exception of Long Liz. But basically just each one got more and more brutal until you end on, you know, poor Mary there, who got yeah. definitely got it the worst. So yeah, it did feel like if it was one person that it, it did feel like it was getting he's kind of figuring his his uh methods out. Well, there's another theory about that and here's why it could have been progressively getting worse. So one of the suspects was this guy named Francis Craig. He was a reporter during the Ripper murders. He had suffered from mental illnesses. Uh, He lived just seven minutes away from the first murder scene. And he apparently was married to Mary Kelly, the final victim. So a lot of people theorize, or at least at one point he was married to her. So a lot of people theorize that he was, he wanted to get back with his wife. He was jealous. He hated the fact that she was working as a sex worker and he wanted to repair the relationship and it just wasn't working out. She wanted nothing to do with him. She had a huge drinking problem and it just wasn't working the way he wanted it to. So the theory is that he might've gone crazy and in an attempt to scare her out of that line of work, he may have started killing off her friends and other sex workers in the area. And when it just wasn't doing the trick of scaring her straight, basically he was getting more and more vicious with these kills and the, the idea is his ultimate plan was if he doesn't scare her back into his arms, then he was just going to take her out. And when it didn't work out, that's why the final kill was so brutal and so over the top. It was the only one that was inside. And the theory is he went nuts on her. And this is why the killings also stopped, because that was his final plan was to actually take her out. But he killed the other ones for two reasons. Number one, to create the distraction. And number two. Well, number one would probably be to try to scare her out of that profession. And number two was to cover up the kill. Because if he just went for her kill first, he might have been named as as one of the main suspects. So that's why he started with the other ones first. So it that's just the seems theory a little, it's excessive. If somebody was going to that extent because mm-hmm. he uh, was, you could say he loved her this much that he was going to the extent, which is too far, or he was possessive enough to go to this extent Either way, it just doesn't make sense that he'd end up killing her at the end if he went to that extent to try and salvage whatever relationship he had. Or that I think it's one or the other. If this is the guy, and I I don't fully think that this is the guy, but I think he's one of the more likely um, suspects. I'd put him in maybe the top 20. So with him, I think it it was probably either one or the other. And I was kind of tossing out both theories and kind of mixing them together. But it was either he was trying to scare her straight or he had no intentions of scaring her straight or trying to repair the relationship. He just wanted to kill her and he killed the other ones to throw the police off. So they think that there's some serial killer going around taking out sex workers. And the ultimate plan was to actually take out his ex-wife. Both actually, of those I, are reasonable, I think. I, I understand the theory, but I hate it because it's like, I want to commit this murder. You know how I'm going to throw the police off the scent? I'm going to commit four other murders. <laughs> like It's just, yeah, it's, I mean, it's giving yourself more outs to get caught. It, it, it's just True. it seems absolutely insane that that's that's the reasoning that you would go for it. I, I so I understand the theory. I know what it's born out of, but I hate it. And it was one that I'm glad you did bring up because I do, I do, I just think it's bullshit. I, I like it, it. Just it's so silly to me that, and clearly 
there is enjoyment being had by this person that's doing these killings. It's very much ritualistic. Like they, they have something that they're trying to do. And I don't think if you're setting up a murder, you do it to this extent. It might have been the throat cut and that's it. I don't think you go this crazy if that's what you were setting up. And I just don't think any person is actually setting it up in the first place. So TDS1 yeah, has a uh, comment here right. that I want. So he says the, uh, or she, TDS1, the idea of police detecting crime was relatively new at the time. They were closer to watchmen. So there were actually two forms of police at the time. You had the, the actual police department. You had Scotland Yard which didn't actually cover London. Then you had the London police. And then you actually did have the night watchmen, which were kind of like a vigilante group because the the local police were so incompetent, basically. And the reason was, was because the guy who was in charge, this guy named Warren, basically militarized the police. So there was all the chain of command went through him. And it was basically just like a, it was all screwed up. Nobody could do anything without getting the going through the right channels. So it was just super ineffective. So that's why the vigilante thing opened up. And that's uh, actually where you got one of the letters. Eventually. Right. So let's, let's get into the first murder, right? So that's Polly Ann Nichols. Correct. That was the first woman that was murdered canonically, theoretically by Jack the Ripper. I think even if he wasn't responsible for that other murder, I do think that, whoever did this probably had already done it a few other times before this one, maybe not to this extent, maybe finding what they wanted to do. But the first canonical victim is, is Polly Nichols who was found with her throat cut. And when they bring her to the, to do the autopsy, they pull her dress up and they see that he had cut her open and her bowels were starting to protrude, but not to the extent that some of the other victims have later. There, I have a theory on this, and I don't know where you guys stand on this, but what I think happened, and, I, and we're really going to talk about this when we get to the suspects, is I think he was interrupted on this one, too. So he was interrupted on Long Liz, the third victim, for sure. Like, it's just 100%, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I think he was in the middle of doing what he wanted to do, what he did to victims two, four, and five. And I think somebody walked up on him and he had to abandon ship and get away from there. And that's why he didn't fully do. I think he had the plan to actually take out the, the intestines and put them over the shoulder as his calling card. I think that was already in a plan. I don't know if you guys have that same theory, if you think he was still experimenting at this point, but to me, it seems very reasonable. I think it I think sounds. It, I think it's more. I lean more towards he was experimenting. I don't know because were there witness accounts for this one? Because there were witness accounts for Long Liz, and that's why I think well, if there's a witness, then there's your guy who interrupted. But mm-hmm. this one, I don't know if there were any. Yeah, he got rolled up on um, pretty much right away. So that she, although they said she was cold to the touch, I, I don't know because the, the the account for the witnesses that rolled up and there was two of them. There was basically one. Who we'll talk about in a little bit. I know Rob wants to. And then there was another one who he basically called over like, oh my God, I found a body. But they said when they first saw her, they could see that her throat was slit, but there wasn't blood pooling out yet. And blood can flow out of the body for up to like two hours. Are you hours. talking about Polly Nichols or are you talking yeah. about Long? Okay. Yes. Yes. So eventually that blood did start pouring out. So this is why I strongly believe that Jack was interrupted during this kill. And he probably would have gone to the extent that Rob was talking about, which is he didn't do as much as he did in two, four, what was it? Two, four and um, five. Right. Right. So 
I think he was definitely right. interrupted. He could have been just working it out as well if it's kill number For one. Sure. Right? But and just to, to update what you said, her hands were cold to the touch, but her head was still warm. So they, they did touch her head. And it, this story is crazy because these two guys, right? They're sitting there. They find this body. They're like, ah, what do we do? We're, we're, I guess we got to find a cop. And then they're talking about how they don't want to be late to work. Yeah, like, they both bro. just kind of they both just made a pact. They're like, me and you, me and you, first police officer we see, we're going to tell him about it. And then, then they just kind of went off to work. Then and, straight to work. And the yeah, police are they, like, yeah, get out of here. Police ended up finding him. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like it wasn't or finding like, her anyways. They didn't they didn't even tell the police as far as I know. And that's what we're going to hear over and over again in this story is I think Jack the Ripper should have been caught about 57 times. But look, and I'm all for people minding their business, like mind your business in most cases. When a murder is involved, maybe we don't mind our business when a murder is involved. And I think just neglect from people that could be possible witnesses not wanting to get involved is literally the only reason why Jack the Ripper was never caught. I it's think such it, a high crime area and there's exactly there's like really just poverty stricken area. I don't think there was any intervention in any crimes going on at this time in this area. Yeah, for I mean, the most part. I mean, it's it's also such a dark area. And when they found her, I believe it was like four or four thirty in the morning or something like that. So the sun hadn't risen yet. It was still dark outside. And it's just such a dimly lit area. And like you just said, Dave, it was so crime ridden at the time. I mean, this they didn't know that this was going to be a serial killer. This is the first kill. So right. nobody's on high alert for uh, for women getting their throats slit. This well, that's might not be true. Early, and, and they didn't. Well, for that particular style, but they they're, they go on high alert immediately after this one. After, because of the but other But not one. before. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. We're I talking missed. about the first kill. Yeah, exactly. I so, misunderstood. Yeah. Right, right. So there, there wasn't like the immediate panic. It was just like, okay, there's just, they didn't even think she was dead at first. They thought it was just a drunk girl laying in the street or something. So mm. they were obviously surprised by it, but I could see why there wasn't the immediate panic from everybody because it might have just been a one off thing. Before, which probably before, happened pretty often, to be honest. And before we get to the second uh, murder, what I don't think people fully grasp sometimes is this happened in three months. Like th- yeah. this wasn't like a, like, cause, I just I never grasped that thought like of how how fast it happened. It was September to November, like the end of September to early November and done or like early September or whatever. August. End of August. August 31st, 30, August 31st yeah, was uh, Polly Nichols. Right. So August 31st to the beginning of November and it's done. It's over with because I was thinking like maybe he when you first hear the story, it's like how long did he ruin these people's lives how long were people on high alert and it's like it was a three-month window i mean it, it's just it's just so fast it's so quick. it happened quick and then it stopped just as quick as it uh as it started right so let's move on to murder number two before we do that i think it's let's important stick around with murder number one <laughs> <laughs> so this happened in bucks row right yeah. after this murder happened might not have been right after shortly after they ended up changing the name of bucks road to derwood street and on derwood street to this day people still claim that they can see the ghost of Polly Nichols. I think it's important to talk about the ghost on the ghost story show. Yes. So, so. Well, that that is fascinating because I knew there were some ghost stories associated with Jack the Ripper. I didn't realize that pretty much every victim as well as Jack the Ripper himself is still seen mm-hmm. to this day. And all uh, still seen, but most of them well, still are. Most of them still are. 
Right. So, yeah, let's get into this one, Dave. Yeah, so this one's creepy. And it's basically on Durwood Street, an apparition that's often seen as a huddled figure, like that of a woman, and it Mm -hmm. emits light from all over, like a ghostly light. And it's frequently to be seen lying in the gutter. And when you approach this, people because people will go up to it thinking that it's a person laying there, it'll just disappear. The light will, and the light will disappear too. So you got a lot going on there. If ghosts are yeah. energy, you have an appar- like a full-on apparition of a person laying in the gutter, and you have it emitting light. So real creepy, real creepy stuff. Yeah, that is. Uh, it's not not a very common one either. Is the ghost emitting light? We've we've heard a couple of them before, like floating balls of light or, or ghosts that seem to be giving off a source of light. But that is a that's a different one. If it's right at the location, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, so, if it, if it's residual, that's different then, right? Like because it's it could it clearly seems like a residual haunting, a terrible residual haunting. But with the light emitting, I wonder I wonder what that particularly means. Yeah, it's weird. So if this this is one of those hauntings that still happens to this day, but this one's for me, I think it's even weirder back in the eight, late eighteen hundreds because at night it was so dark. There were no electric street lights at this time. They if there were street lights, they were flickery lanterns. So for them to see an apparition that was emitting light like that, what else could that be? Mm. Moon reflecting off a puddle, maybe, but it just seems more interesting back then. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're over an hour and we are uh, we got to move along with the other ghosts and the other killings. So but before we do that, it's going to be a long boy. Just so everyone knows. Before we do that, special treat. You guys ready? Jack Jack the Ripper. I don't know if we should keep doing that. Anyways, uh, moving on. (laughs) Audio listeners are going to love this show. I'm taking Uh, all that out. All right. Kill number two. So audio, uh, audio and and Annie Chapman. As Dave said, she was found in a yard, like behind this fenced area. And I find her super interesting because there were witnesses for this one. Someone saw her with a man um, talking to him. But the more interesting one is the guy that comes out to go to the bathroom, right? And he hears like a struggle happening. And as the struggle's happening, he hears something hit the fence and he's like, I don't know if it was a something or a somebody, but he doesn't even look over the fence. Like he, he doesn't even look over the fence to see what it is. And this again, I know what you guys are saying, like how there's so much going on that people were trying to mind their business, but with a struggle and something falling against the fence, aren't you at least a little curious that you want to see what the hell's going on and run back? Maybe, but it, I don't know. It's just, this is the area, man. There's just fist fights. Everyone is unbelievably trashed. We didn't even touch on that. Everybody is yeah. so drunk off way too much gin and beer. It is these uh, like a lot of these, these working girls, like they would, instead of coming up with the money to, to get a room for the night, because a lot of them were staying in these boarding houses, they would just, they would just go spend it at the bar and then just go back on the streets. That's part of the reason that a couple of these girls were killed because they just kept going out and up. So I learned two useless historical nuggets on this episode when i was researching it one did you know that sneakers were called sneakers because when they came out they were just so much quieter than the shoes that were walking on cobblestones and a lot of the people that were part of the vigilant committees were taking were getting sneakers for that particular reason during this time never even thought about the name of sneakers nope i did not know that until i started listening to content on jack the ripper 
So right. here we are. And the other one is we're talking about the sleeping conditions of this time. Here's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And maybe we can pull a picture up of it at some point. But basically, to is your point. Hangover rope? Is that what I'm looking yes, for? Yes. Okay. So people would pay money to go to go actually sleep laying over a rope when they didn't have enough room money for a room. And that's where you get the term hangover because you would hang over this rope while you slept after a night of drinking. It's incredibly wild. Like, it's just so like, I never thought of like why we said, Oh, he has a hangover and uh, there's the reason. So, yeah. So they were, they were allowed to sleep as long as they were hanging over the rope. And then in the morning they would just come and, undo the rope and everyone would just fall fall <laughs> yeah they yeah. actually depicted this in um we're going to talk about this movie on on friday but on in the uh from hell movie and yeah. i don't know if you guys caught that scene but I I was, if had i not been doing research on this episode <laughs> I, and that, I would have been like what the fuck was that scene so they had that and they also had these like these little boxes that they laid on the ground and they were basically coffins and they were about everything was just filthy by the way and yeah for a little bit more than the hangover rope, you could just lay down in one of these boxes and sleep and sleep in one of these. So like, I think like the, the hangover rope was like two pence for one pence. You could sit on the bench, but you couldn't sleep for three pence. I think you got the coffin box. I might be wrong about these things for six pence. You got a room for five pence. You could like sleep in the corner of somebody else's room. It was a weird time. There was a yeah. ton of people too. This is massively overcrowded and it was full, full of, some some rough folks to say the least yeah just crazy living conditions especially in this part of london it was considered like the worst and london really tried to hide it so as we get back to the victim here when she's found this is when things really escalate in terms of what's going on with the victims she's found like in this little field area near this house near these groups of houses and this little area of grass people were known to go to to sleep like homeless people would go here to sleep so they think she might have been on her way there anyways before meeting up with with the killer eventually so it might have been a place that she was going to sleep originally and when they find her 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 throat is cut to the bone again but now she is actually sliced open with her intestines over her shoulder um with organs missing and it's the first time that it happens out of the two victims and we really start to see the jack the ripper mo with this killing particularly yeah and this is where investigators and police came up with the theory they the still going theory that whoever this killer was had to have some sort of anatomical knowledge and because of the way that he was removing these organs so i mean obviously he's being pretty careless with the rest of this body doing all sorts of carvings and slicings and all this kind of stuff but when he it seemed like when he was targeting a kidney or a uterus or a different kind of organ that he wanted out of that particular person he was cutting out with extreme precision knowing what to peel back what to slice and, and how to remove it so it seemed that he did have some sort of knowledge about the body yeah and from this point we have to get into the letters right because this is when the dare boss letter comes out so the dare boss letter in between the next two killings comes out and the police actually release it. It's, it's written in red ink. It's, 
it's um, addressed to the boss of the newspaper. He talks about what he's going to do in the next murder. He's going to cut off her ears and send them to, to the newspaper guy, possibly. That's not what ends up happening. Actually, something worse ends up happening with this. And we'll get to that after the third and fourth murder. But this is when I think it really takes off. I think you brought this point up earlier, Jesse. Like when he when he writes this letter and he signs it as Jack the Ripper. And mm-hmm. I find the letters very, very fascinating um, because of the fact that there were people like, well, the killer would never interject himself like this. Like you hear this theory a lot, like when you're watching some of the documentaries and stuff. And it's like, well, have you ever watched what serial killers do? They interject themselves into the investigation and stuff in all different ways, all the time. Um, Kemper was talking to the police every day, asking them questions, like, because he was trying to be friendly with them. You have the Zodiac killer that was sending cryptic letters that were coded that was messing with the police. This is what some of these people do. Mm-hmm. So it might not have been him, but the other fascinating part of it is thousands of letters start to get sent eventually. Yeah. And now they have to comb through all of this. Yeah. A lot of it was nonsense. I think my going theory, and I would assume you guys might be on the same page. I think the dear boss letters uh, were probably fake. And I think the, the clue number one was they were sent to a news agency. They were not sent to an actual newspaper. And the going theory is that if you don't know, if you don't have, if you don't work for the press, you don't know that you're that to send a news story to a news agency. What a news agency does is they come up with these stories and they sell these stories to the newspapers. Mm-hmm. If you're just your average Joe Smo serial killer, you would probably just send it straight to the newspaper, right? So maybe the killer had worked in as a reporter at some some point or knew the inner workings of how newspapers work at the time. Maybe not. But yeah, there's I think, that. So and, it would make sense that it's either somebody who works for the news, somebody who is a journalist who is trying to pump the story up, or it could just be somebody of above average intelligence who'd know that would, that's the best way to get it out to the masses is send it to the person who's going to send it to everyone. Maybe that's not the end all be all, but there's also the fact that he mentions that the blood thickened and he wanted to use it as ink. If Jack the Ripper had anatomical knowledge, which seems to be the going theory here, he would have known what blood does after a little while. He would have known it would have thickened up and he would have been able to use it. There's debate on that, though. I I agree with you. I do think he had some anatomical knowledge, but there are people that push back on that a bit that he didn't have like full anatomical knowledge just based on this. Like, they just think he was slashing and just doing and just grabbing what he could grab at certain points. Yeah. I, I I think he had to have. I think he had to have been some sort of a surgeon or a doctor or a bar, or a barber. People forget this. So we mentioned a, a few of these suspects were barbers. Mm-hmm. Barbers at the time were also surgeons. They were called barber surgeons. You'd go to right. the barber. We've talked about this before on the show, where you go to the barber, you get a haircut, and then you could also just get a small surgery. It sounds yeah. absolutely wacky, but that's actually why the barber signs are blue and red. You know, they twist. Blue means yeah. haircuts, and I guess red means they also did surgeries. So that's kind of a interesting thing. So any of these barbers that you have on the suspect list, you got to also remember that they're going to have that kind of knowledge as well. Yeah, Dave, why don't you uh, hit us with a little bit of the ghost associated with this one? Yeah, so Annie Chapman is definitely the most, I don't want to say popular ghost, but she's the one that's cited the most mm-hmm. uh, in the opening 
story you heard me talk about, the guy named Mr. Chapman, and he lived at the site that the murder took place on 29 Hambury Street. And this was in the 19, early 1900s. On several different occasions, he used to see a man and a woman walking down the street. The man would be following the woman, and then they'd both just disappear. And he said it would happen. It would always happen in the early morning during the fall, which was right around the same time that Annie Chapman was killed. And that was when it would happen the most. So that's pretty weird. I For sure. That you have. It, Sorry, go ahead. And it seems like we're setting up a lot of residual hauntings with the Jack the Ripper case, right? Because if that's if that's the situation, then that's probably what happened as on the night of, you know, the actual murder itself or the morning of the actual murder itself. Right. Right. Yeah. So all, all, a lot of these just sound like residual hauntings for the most part. So the other haunting that she is affiliated with is the 10 bells pub on the corner of commercial street and Fournier street, where she allegedly had a drink the morning of the murder in the 1970s, the landlord of the pub, this, this place is actually still open. You can still go there right now. The 10 bells pub. It's um, on the but, list. It's put it on the list, that short list of places that we want to go to. That short um, list of 300 places that we want to go to. <laughs> but uh, in the 1970s, the landlord of that the pub. Top, this is towards the top of that short list because it's a pub. You know who I think interrupted the uh, the Jack the Ripper while he was killing all these people? I think it was Jesse. I think Jesse was the one who was interrupting. <laughs> who, did, who did I interrupt? <laughs> Jack, Jack the, the Ripper. Ripper. So in I, 19... I don't think it's going to be a bit that sticks around. All right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'm muting my mic. I'm leaving the room. Go ahead. This reminds <laughs> me of a great knock-knock joke. Knock-knock. Who's there? The in the 1970s... <laughs> The landlord of the pub reported strange gusts of cold wind that came out of nowhere and a radio that switched on and off. He claimed that it was Annie Chapman's ghost. She or whoever the poltergeist may have been did obviously not like the 1970s radio program. So that's the other haunting. So apparently you can still go to the 10 Bells pub today and witness these hauntings because this is one of those residual hauntings that still goes on to this day. Yeah, but um, wasn't, didn't, uh, the last victim, her name's escaping me right now. Mary oh, Jane. Oh, the final. The final victim. Mary Jane. Um, Kelly. Kelly. Didn't she go to the 10 pubs the, the morning that she passed away as well? She was there the night before. Mm -hmm. And then when she left. Yeah. So, yes. Short answer. So, That's I guess, yeah, to your point, I guess the point you're making here is how do you know it's one and not the other? Well, I was, oh. just, I, I was just more so making, yeah. making it known that it's an interesting fact that they both were at the same pub before. So do you think he was scouting them there? Probably if his, if his MO was picking up sex workers at night, and this is a place where they'd all congregate was the local pub where they'd go mm. and meet guys who are out drinking. Then it makes sense that there were multiple women there. Yeah. yeah as far as targets. I know, there was a few, there was a few pubs. This was, uh, I think the main one, but they would bounce between each one. So it could be one, if not several that are haunting there, but that's, that's another cool one. So that brings us into the double event, which is also very interesting. Mm -hmm. So it starts with long Liz, who this, this man's driving his horse, like his horse cart. Right. And his, horse pulls to the left suddenly as he's getting close to where he needs to be. He's actually pulling up to his location and the horse like kind of gets startled and pulls to the left. He's like, what the hell is going on? And 
to the point that you both have made, it is pitch black. It's like, you know, one in the morning, somewhere around there. It's pitch black out. He lights a match. And as he lights the match, he sees the body in front of the cart. And he freaks out. And he runs around. He, at first, he thinks it's his wife, actually. That's how close he is to his destination. He thought it was his wife. And he's like, oh, man, is that my wife? He runs into the pub after after that to see if she's in there. There's like this, it's like a meeting hall type situation. And he's running around. He's like a chicken with his head cut off, basically. And what they think happened is that he actually interrupted Jack as he was committing this crime. Because all she has really is her throat cut. And they think that he interrupted Jack. And Jack was probably standing no more than 10 feet away from him, either around a corner or something. And if he had, instead of running into the pub, freaking out, called out for people to come out to him, they think that Jack would have been caught this night, which yeah, is in the um, wild. The diary that I touched on at the end of the episode, that was one of the uh, things that he had actually talked about in that diary was how when he had committed that kill, he was hiding just a few feet away. And he's like, in, if this was really Jack's diary, we'll go to that one a little bit. But as he was going through it, he was, he was talking about how, how stupid everyone was that they didn't just look for him because he was sitting right there and he was positive that he was going to get caught there if it was actually Jack's diary. So we'll get right. to that one in a little while. Yeah. So he gets interrupted basically, but he still has this urge. We'll call it for mm -hmm. lack of a better word. Before we hop to the second one, Ulysses, Ulysses says, how did Jack not hear a horse coming when he started that murder? The, uh, the theory is that that's why he stopped was because he did hear the horse coming and then he saw the guy. So that is uh, why she only had her throat slit. Like, yeah, I mean, he could have done it and then the horse or... gets within earshot and that's when he's just like, oop, gotta, you know, gotta at least take care of her type of deal. And then, you know, so... Everyone's congregating around this body. The police are there. There's there's a big crowd that lines up. And not that far away, um, Eddowes, what's her name? God damn it. Catherine, so Catherine, Catherine Eddowes. She, she was locked up this night. They locked her up for public drunkenness. And as she's sitting there in the jail cells, she finally is like, when can I get the hell out of there? And they're like, when you're able to walk on your own. So she's finally able to walk on her own. They let her out at like one, one o'clock in the morning. And she's walking around. People have seen her on the street. A bunch of people see her at one She's seen talking to this man. And at one 15 minutes later, 14 minutes later, the police officer comes through miter square and finds her body and her body is mutilated. So within 14 minutes, he commits this heinous crime and it's just baffling. And, and then you have the whole crowd running. If the word starts to get around, they all run to Mitre Square. It's chaos. And just all of these killings are chaos. And there's no crime scene, you know, preservation like there is today, obviously. So people are just trampling through. There's nothing to collect anyways. He did a good job of usually not leaving behind any evidence. The only time he did is he cut a little bit of a woman's um, shawl off and cleaned his hands and they found it a little bit down the street from her. That's what they say. Uh, I think the other theory is that this 
who knows whose shawl this is. I think it was covered in that, no, this is blood a and one. feces and oh, okay. I thought it was Edo's. No, the, this this one was actually reported on. The one you're talking about, they think wasn't reported on. They think that someone just took like one of the cops took a trophy, but there was actually one that was found and it was shown that he wiped his hands off. And they don't know what happened to that one. Yeah, because they found like the bloody sink or whatever. I just wonder how many of these sinks were bloody anyways. You're, you're in like a meat market. Everybody is bloody. Right. So it's like right. a, you got a, a public sink that some butcher might be washing his hands or a midwife or a serial killer. Who knows? It could be anybody. Yeah. yeah. So so he does the double event. He, he kills both of these people within an hour. Again, probably interrupted. But now Catherine Eddowes is more mutilated than anyone else has been. Not only is she her throat cut to the bone. The intestines are thrown over her shoulder. He went to work on her face on this one. He's cutting her ears. He cut her nose off. He cut uh, triangles around her eyes. Uh, yeah. So they're like so it's escalating up. This is where like the whole Freemason uh, theory comes into place. They think that he might have been carving the Mason symbol. There's Juggalo there's more of that as well. <laughs> I think that with the I don't I don't want to go too much into this theory because I actually didn't look into it too too much, but. Mm-hmm. There was um, three – actually, I, I really don't – I'm going to rip the part if I go into this and don't actually know the facts. But it had something to do with some sort of symbolic thing with the intestines going over the shoulder and the message that was written on the wall about the mm-hmm. Jews, which was spelled incorrectly. It could have been like three of the Masons that were executed in the same way at some point in time. Again, not an expert on this. I did not look fully into this theory, I but am. that's one of the theories. You I'm are. All right, go. Yeah. Oh, I'm no. Ready. You weren't going to do that. No, I, I never said you said you weren't going to do it. I'm a ripperologist. I <laughs> I put too much time into this this week. I, I spend most of my time making really cool new animations for us. So <laughs> I left all the research to you. Take it away, ripperologist. I was just sitting there watching documentary after documentary, reading reports and everything else like that. I'm a goddamn ripperologist, and I dare you, I dare you, ripperologist, to come for me. They're gonna so. they're gonna come and say which one which one of you was the ripperologist, the one who keeps forgetting all the names. <laughs> <laughs> He's the Ripper Robolist. Ripper yeah. Robologist? Robberologist. Robberologist. Media Robber Robologist. Moving on. <laughs> I, thought so it was get, joke. I thought it went, we, over, it went over really well. We do get hauntings associated with the double event as well. Yes. So the, the haunting is so associated with uh, Long Liz Stride is the disembodied screams that are heard through the alleyway where she was murdered. And the, the legend behind this and you can poke holes in it if you like. But the legend is that she was screaming for help and nobody came to her aid when she was killed. That's why the disembodied screams echo through the night. Um, my f- immediate problem with this is she was the only one who somebody did come and intervene. The only one. <laughs> Possibly yeah. Polly Nichols also. So, But I guess they didn't get there in time because she did actually die. So fair enough. And the way to poke the hole on that is he didn't hear her. And you would think that the guy that pulled up in the cart probably would have been with an earshot of of it happening of being able to hear her yeah in theory yeah and then the other one was Catherine Eddowes and Catherine Eddowes ghost is another one that actually appears in the gutter as an apparition laying in the gutter and disappears when you approach it which is interesting that two hauntings that similar happening in different areas of town and also, so she was killed in Mitre Square, and 
this is the square that you can still go and occasionally on the anniversary of the killing, you allegedly can see it glowing red at night. Ooh, which is an interesting one. And as we're talking about this, I kind of have this theory in my head. We talk about energy all the time. Mm -hmm. And think of all the energy that is spent just researching, talking about going to see the locations. The Jack the Ripper case has energy all around it at all times, basically. Like people are putting energy into these places, into this story. And I wonder if that is what's kind of making some of the residual hauntings occur. Yeah, or keeping them going for this right. long. Over what we're talking about 130 years or so, right? Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that might be part of it. So because again, they are, they all seem like residual hauntings, every single one so far. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and I think all of them, all of them are all residual. I don't think there's any intelligent hauntings, possibly the Jack the Ripper ones. But yeah, TDS brings up a good point that Whitechapel should be a ghost party as life was so brutal. Yeah, so I mean, it's not even to say that these are actual Ripper victims that are haunting these places. I think it's likely, but it, it also could be any number of other people that also died here. I mean, that there was children... Like it was like 50% of them died before the age of five in Whitechapel mm -hmm. alone, which was significantly higher than other places. It was just a really rough time to try to live there. Yeah. And now we get into the from hell letter that was sent to George Lusk, the, the president of that vigilance committee that we talked about, the Whitechapel vigilante committee. And of all the letters, I find this one the most fascinating for a very, very obvious reason. And that was sent with a kidney and a kidney was missing from Catherine Eddowes. They also named this letter after a Johnny Depp movie. So they must they have did. the movie. They did. Mm -hmm. So Johnny really Depp was clearly the killer of all these people so that this movie could happen. So we yeah. solved it. There we go. That's our show, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> No, but like, so we, we talk about the thousands of letters sent and this one is kind of pointed out as possibly being authentic from the killer. I mean, it was a human kidney that they know for sure. They know that this was a human kidney that was sent a piece to of George one. Lusk. It's about a, about a half a kidney, but they, but the, it was confirmed that it was human. So it was also right. confirmed that it was the same kidney that Catherine was missing. Right. The same, like, on the, like that yeah, side of her, a, whether I I whether it was, it was right or kidney. left, I don't remember, but it happened yeah. to be the same one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, like of all the letters, this feels like it's the most likely to actually be from the killer. I, I also think you guys stand. I also yeah. think the from hell, the from hell letter was legitimate mainly because of the main piece of evidence, which is the piece of the kidney that was included. And the other thing with this letter that was a lot different than the other one is it looks like they were intentionally trying to hide their handwriting by basically scribbling all over the page. Mm. Now, maybe they just had <laughs> terrible handwriting but it looked like it was, to me anyways, it looked like it was intentionally trying to disguise their handwriting to not get right. caught, which would yeah. be right up. I mean, this guy has been basically committing murders in public. He's doing four out of his five murders were right in the street. Yes, it was dark. Yes, it was the middle of the night. But still, that's a ballsy move either way. So he was clearly good at evading the law and covering up his crimes. And I think this was just another way for him to cover it up where it's like, okay, these other letters are bullshit. I'm going to write them a real letter and I'll prove that it's me by including an actual piece of this victim's body. So right. I, I think, it, I think if any of them are real, it's this one. 
Yeah, it just it feels like it might actually be. And again, we've talked about the serial killers interjecting themselves. So found that really interesting. But the other thing that's interesting is after the double, the double event, he goes silent for his longest period between kills, right? So and and I wonder if there's multiple factors for that. He does the double event, so he he doesn't get to do what he wants to do to the first victim, Long Liz, but he does get to do it to Catherine Eddowes. And he gets to absolutely mangle her for versus what he did to anyone else. And I wonder if he was more satisfied at this point or if he was more scared. I wonder if he was a little shook from almost being caught from the third victim. I think so as well. I think that's part of the reason that he took it indoors. I think the reason that he waited was this day that he committed this murder. All the police were basically out of town for some sort of holiday that they have over there. I can't remember off the top of my head what it was. But all I know is... Yeah, okay, whatever that was, police were busy. So he was able to commit this crime without worrying about police basically, you know, storming all around and possibly catching him in the act. Which is also the reason that he waited for this date. Yeah, and I think the other thing that he waited for was the something you alluded to, Jesse, where I think after the fourth victim, he's like, I need more. So, and he felt that the way to get more was to do it inside so that he had time. So I think he he had built up to that point where he knew what he wanted to do and he was going to wait to do it where, when he could actually do what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And then they stop after this. So before we go to who we think are the best suspects or wrap this thing up, Dave, do we have a haunting on the final ghost here? Well, well real quick, it's Mary Jane Kelly. He, he brings her into her room and absolutely massacres her, right? He, you can you look know, up those. You showed us the pictures. I didn't show you anything. That would I be, showed, I that, showed would, pictures. that would be Jesse. That showed I think I even went in and, and flashed in one of the pictures in one of your scenes, just so you could also get, uh, get reprimanded for it. <laughs> that way I don't have all the blame, but I literally pasted it over one of your videos as well. I was like, ha ah! yeah. yeah. But these, yeah. these crime scene photos, if, brutal. This, if this is not your thing and you don't like looking at things like, I don't know who does. Right. I, I mean, we kind of do. We kind of pick this job. So, <laughs> thanks, thanks for the thanks for thanks for the heads up. A full hour after you already showed it to everyone. <laughs> so we didn't give a great look at the crime scene photos, but they are in the video. So if you're one of those people that listens to the audio version that goes back and watch the YouTube video, viewer discretion advised. An hour and a half later, we do show the um, little bit of the crime scene photos there. But you can look them up. They are available, and they are absolutely terrifying. Especially this one. This one, you pull it up, and you don't even know what you're looking at for a second, and then you start to yeah. figure out that you're actually looking at a body and it is absolutely horrific what was done here it was a uh, terrible a rough crime scene and it was uh yeah she was she was torn apart so i they think that the way he got in was through there was a broken window and they basically like stuffed a piece of like a shirt in there or something like that to um block up the hole but the, there was a weird locking mechanism where I think maybe the key had broken off or whatever, but you could only open it from the inside or if you went outside and reached in and unlocked it. So they think either Jack the Ripper overheard a conversation about how to open the door to get in or he saw them, you know, poke their hand through the window. So he must have been lurking, you know, casing the joint basically before because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to get in. There was no force entry in the door. Or well, a lot of a lot of people saw her talking to a man throughout the night and right. one of her friends or he was a client. Yeah followed her and the man back to the house and he waited outside for 45 minutes and they think that he was actually so so to your point about how bad crime is they think that 
Mary Jane Kelly's friend was waiting outside because he was dressed kind of the man that she was with was kind of dressed a little more upscale. So they think he might have actually been waiting there to rob him when he left the house. And he's just he's out waiting. there stressing because he's in there so long. He's like, man, just blowing all his money. Get yeah. the hell out of there. <laughs> so that that's what they that was one theory of why this guy was waiting outside for her, for him. And uh, yeah, it's just crazy. I think he was probably a client. She brought him back there. She needed money. Her rent was due the next day. She needed to get this paid. And unfortunately, she picked the wrong person for that night to to bring back to the house. But I think my theory is he had her picked out. He knew that she was a girl that had a room that he could go back to with her. He knew that she probably brought other clients back there. He had this cased out. He knew which girl he wanted to approach and... It was this one. I think was more premeditated than any of the other ones. I think you're right. I think she was younger than all the rest too, right? Right. She, she was. She was in her twenties. A lot of the other ones were in their forties at this point in time. Um, yeah. So I, I just think this one was like really premeditated, and it was basically like you said, it was his climax, right? Because nothing happens after this, and there's a lot of different theories as to why, which we'll get into in a second. But let's just talk about the ghost of Mary Jane Kelly. So the ghost of Mary Jane Kelly is an interesting one because right after she was murdered, there were a whole bunch of witness accounts of people that claimed that they spoke with Mary later in the morning after she had already been dead. And these are people that know her that weren't going to make the mistake of saying, oh, you could have just been talking to someone else. Not the case. These are people that knew her, that were familiar with her from the bar that she used to frequent, the 10, the 10 Bells pub there. And... They also don't know. I spoke with Mary later that morning. Mm. And then when they were asked further questions, they were saying things like, yeah, she seemed a little bit out of it, but she's always drunk. So who knows? So it's just weird that there would be that many witness accounts um, after she was killed because she was killed very early in the morning while it was still dark out. And, and this one is seems like it's more uh, not of the, of the, um, residual haunting it's more of an intelligent haunt because she's actually having a conversation with some of these people yeah i don't know if so if it was if people are saying that what she was saying wasn't making a lot of sense that could Mm -hmm. still be a residual haunt you know you see somebody you think you know and you say hey how are you and they say something that doesn't make sense and that could just be a an apparition going through emotion that they had been going through in life which would make sense as to why they weren't saying things that made sense that's fair and again she was at the San bells pub before the night before this happened as well so a lot of times people ask if the if any of the girls knew each other and i couldn't find any evidence that they knew each other but i'm sure some of them knew of the like because of the living conditions for all i'm sure they yeah i'm sure they crossed paths and they i mean they're all going to the same pub so they they probably ran to each other yeah they might not have been friends or something but i'm sure some of them knew each other for sure yeah Mm -hmm. according to the documentary by johnny depp called from hell they were mm. they were great friends. They were so. best friends in that movie mm-hmm. yep. that we're going to talk about at some point. I think it's time to get into some of these suspects. Yeah, we touched on a few of them. I do want to go a little bit further on a few of them. So we talked about Montague or Montague, Montague, John Drew, Montague, Montague. I think it, I think that's the final one. It seems to me that I mean, like a lot of people said that he might have been like a medical apprentice. It seemed like he studied law for a little bit. I don't think there's any evidence that actually ties this guy to the crime, other than the fact that he committed suicide right after the final kill. So, yeah, a lot of experts believe that that could have happened. I think this is—I uh, don't think it could have been him at all. So, I'm not on the board with that one. 
another one that I wanted to talk about was real. Can, can I just ahead. do a Jesse and interrupt you real quick? Uh, what I want to say is if you're in the chat, I want to know who people in the chat think was the killer. And if you're listening to this on the audio, shoot us a message and let us know who you think it was, because I find it interesting. Everybody's theories. Yeah. Swing over to YouTube and uh, leave it in the comments, leave it in the comments. So that was him. You had Carl Feigenbaum. This one was interesting because this is one of the only people who actually confessed to being Jack the Ripper. And this was the guy who was in Whitechapel during the times of the crimes. He had a million different aliases. His actual name was like Lon, I think was his last name, but the newspapers reported it as Zahn. But he had a whole bunch of different names. He was constantly changing his story. And he was a killer as well. So he ended up going and getting caught in New York. And I saw a few people in chat that said that the crime just seemed too sloppy for him to be Jack the Ripper, which I agree with. I don't actually think he was Jack the Ripper. And I actually don't even believe that he really confessed. This was according to his lawyer. And I don't know if I believe his lawyer, to be honest with you. But his lawyer had that detailed confession that I read out a piece of on this uh, on the in the opening there. And um, but apparently right before he, you know, before he was executed, he admitted to being Jack the Ripper to his lawyer, their death. There was another suspected sus, uh, another suspect. I can't remember who it was. It might have been the guy who poisoned his wives. I think it actually was. So the one who poisoned three of his wives. Mm-hmm. I don't know the name right in front of me. Might have been Kazminsky. No, Chapman. not Kazminsky. Chapman. Chapman. Chapman, who had a name similar to Kazminsky. But uh, yeah, yeah, Chapman. Same, same thing. Allegedly. Well, he actually did have a name similar. <laughs> he did. Yeah. Not, not the Chapman one. But so with him, it was, I get apparently, according to some people, right before he was hanged, like right before they dropped him, he said, I am Jack. And then they dropped him and he didn't get to finish his sentence. But there's no like real official reports from did, witnesses saying that they actually you, heard this. Do you think he was real yelling, I am jacking off right now as you drop the rope? I don't think they allow you to do that during your execution. No, he might be a big asphyxiation fan. Yeah, this is the final (laughs) final go at it. The ultimate prize for those that are into that stuff. (laughs) But I I don't know. I I don't believe his lawyer. I I, I honestly think his lawyer was lying. I don't think he did admit to being Jack the Ripper. But honestly, if you're going to get executed anyways, why not throw everyone for a loop? Be like, you know what? I'm going to live in infamy. Guess what? I'm also Jack the Ripper. I'm going to die anyways. I think one of the more ridiculous ones is the royal family thing i think people just want to tie the royal family into everything basically the prince was the reason behind the killings either you some people thought he was the killer but he had syphilis so he wasn't actually able to do it so then they said the royal physician was actually the guy who did it and he was killing the prostitutes because they all knew that the prince had syphilis it was like this whole this whole thing that's like really kind of eye rolling spoiler alert Everyone in Whitechapel had syphilis. Yeah. So it was it was it was everywhere. You see this in a ton of these situations where people started to lose their mind. A lot of a lot of these guys that were in and out of mental institutions was because they were suffering from syphilis years later, which is why I think Al Capone is the main suspect here. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, sickness was real bad in Whitechapel to the point that Annie Chapman, the second victim, actually had tuberculosis and she was gonna be passing away they didn't think she was gonna last too much longer a few more months so like just especially bad she's already down on her luck and then that's the way it ends up happening it just really sucks but sickness in general in Whitechapel was real real bad is there anyone mm-hmm. else you want to hit on before we start talking about our favorite suspects oh yeah so so George Chapman's other name there or his real name was uh Severin Klazowski so 
another ski there. So it was relatively similar, but yeah, he had poisoned three of his wives. So he was a killer, but a lot of these killers don't typically change their MO, which is why people don't believe that it was him. And, um, he was also working as a barber. So we would have had that anatomical knowledge. Like we talked about with barber surgeons and, uh, he was hanged in 1903. So, uh, but this isn't completely different that serial killers could change their MO. And um, you saw it with the, we mentioned the Zodiac killer earlier. I believe he started off shooting people and then he ended up stabbing people mm-hmm. uh, as cr- the crimes progressed. So it's not completely out of the realm of possibilities. Some people just like to kill. It's also why they think there might have been two different Zodiac killers. I think it's very possible. And there could have been copycats in this case as well. Maybe one or two of these weren't actually Jack the Ripper. But I think I agree with the experts in a lot of Ripperologists that say that the canonical five were the actual victims of Al Capone. I mean, <laughs> I, just, I saw Al Capone pop up in the chat. I call that a <laughs> Freudian <laughs> slip. Jack the Ripper. There is a killer. We do know who Jack the Ripper was. If you think back to the very first murder, Charles Cross is standing in the street as Robert Paul approaches him. And Charles Cross looks at Robert Paul. He's like, hey, come over here. I got to show you something. There's something over here. Look, it's just, there's just a woman down here. Just happened to come across her right now, right? And she's not fully mutilated to the extent of some of the other victims. So it does seem like she was interrupted. Charles Cross is really trying to get out of there at that point because he doesn't want to be late to work. He also is not responding to police trying to interview him a few days later it takes him a couple weeks before he does oh also his name's not charles cross the name that he gave the police is charles cross his real name is charles lechmere and he lived and worked within walking distance of all these murders charles cross was interrupted by robert paul on the first murder and charles cross aka really known as charles lechmere is the actual murderer of all these women it was him. It happened at on his walks to work. It always happened. The time frames all match up. The double murder happened on a Saturday, which is the one night that he didn't have to go to work the next day. So the times match up for that as well. It's Charles. It's Charles Lechmere. Well, it's it's not fair that you made Charles Lechmere sound like the 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 suspect or the killer with that voice impression you did of him. You made him sound so guilty. He was like if he sounded like that, then yeah, I agree. Right. But so the whole not talking to the cops thing, nobody, this was a high crime neighborhood. These were a lot of these people were um, in the Socialist Party, which was really anti the, the the police were like militarized and the Socialist Workers Party were not fans of these cops. They're not talking to cops. They're not giving the cops their real names. None of that's going on around here. So this was right in the middle of like a huge, basically political uprising in this area and it just for that for you to say that uh, well he wasn't he was evading the police he gave him a fake name that makes sense all that adds he up he also changed his story a few times too though originally he had said he he had been there for three minutes but then later on it was revealed that he was there for nine minutes mm-hmm. and there, there was a few things that did change about his story and the and rob you touched on it that he lived within walking distance of all these crimes there was also the on the night of the double murders when the first murder got interrupted. The second one was the direct route from like his mother's house 
to his job or so, something along those lines. I might be wrong about that, but it was a direct route that he had basically been taking for about 20 years. And that was the route that Jack the Ripper happened to pick to go to his next victim. It, uh, it does seem to point in his direction there, which is a pretty good, uh, pretty good theory. The, the oh. only two things that, and I, and I will give you the two things that would make it not him. Why would the killings abruptly stopped have stopped? Right? Like that, that doesn't add up too much. And the only other thing it could be is that Charles Cross actually interrupted the first killing. Those would be the the two things that I would say are the evidence against it. But dude, everything really adds up for this guy to be in. If it's if Not it really. is a suspect that we know, why is he doing it? Because he because why do any serial killers? He's do a serial it? killer. It's just no, why why did he do it? He because he's a serial killer. He's, why any serial killer? Why did he start being a serial? I mean, a lot of the, well, a lot of them you have reasons for, right? You have a lot of them that are like paranoid schizophrenics. You have some that are impotent, so they have this hatred against prostitutes. You have another one that saw his wife cheating on him and sent him into this murderous rage. You have another one who may have been married to the final victim, so his reason, you know, you have reasons that all these ones do it. Why is this random guy pushing the meat cart thing randomly just start killing off sex workers? Maybe That's he's always that, wanted to, and he finally acted on his impulses. That's how maybe. every serial killer starts. I think motive is a pretty serious thing to leave out of this whole scenario. Like, sure, he was in not the area, with sure. killers like this. I disagree. Well, no, I mean, uh, for a serial killer, their motive is they want to kill people. Right. It's it's uh, they want to what, satiate. Well, well, okay, well, a lot of these them. other a lot of these other suspects. Yeah, because you you're <laughs> wrong and you're agreeing with knock knock. So, who's there? Are you interrupting Jesse? You didn't even interrupt. Yeah, the interrupting Jesse for nobody. <laughs> <laughs> um no it's so, so the the reason i disagree is because i don't see a motive for this guy to start it these other ones have motives the other the, there are other killers on this list there are murderers that are actually on this list and i, I do want to talk about the next one i think me and dave are on the same page here you're not gonna do this to me you're not gonna do this to me you're not doing this to me did you not know, hear me just intro it over to you? I'm passing this one along okay. to you <laughs> so you can say that hh holmes is jack the ripper go ahead dave so, man, you are brutal. The um, <laughs> so I'll actually give you Charles Jack the Jack Ripper. The <laughs> <laughs> I'll actually give you uh, Charles Lichmere there. So I'll give him. I'll give you Charles for one, two, and five, maybe three, but I think H. H. Holmes killed Catherine Eddowes. So H. H. Holmes was the prolific serial killer from the United States. A couple of years after this all went down and what hh holmes was doing besides a whole bunch of fraud over in the united states was he ended up if you don't know who hh holmes is he ended up being a serial killer who opened up a murder mansion in chicago and was murdering people to harvest their organs and sell them that's a, a very summarized version of what he was doing We've but there. what's interesting about the hh holmes case is he cannot his location cannot be accounted for for the four months that these killings went on and you might say, oh, well, who cares? So you can't account for him. You can account for this guy's whereabouts. And he has a paper trail following him for his entire life because all he was doing was insurance fraud. And there was just this massive paper trail except for this four months. And there's a record on one of the ship um, one of the ship uh, logs that of an H. Holmes coming back from England right after the fifth killing was done. So... That's all interesting. The other thing 
is the handwriting for the Dear Boss letter was a 97% match for H.H. Holmes' handwriting. A 97% match is so perfectly dead on, you almost couldn't fake it if you tried. Right. If you were to sit down and write a letter, and then you were to take out another piece of paper and write the same letter, it's unlikely that you would hit a 97% match. So right. I think you're right about that. And I think H.H. Holmes actually, at, at minimum, wrote this letter. Yeah. So, well, that's, yeah, possible. Because he, he could have been in the area. Um, I mean, H. Holmes, it could have been, it could it's have been any H. Holmes. It's pretty, fairly common. The other thing is there are two separate linguists that say that the letter that was the Dear Boss letter was written by a highly educated American attempting to sound British. So H.H. H. Holmes was a highly intelligent American. And if he were trying to sound British, that would make sense because he's not British. And uh, another one is that Scotland Yard presently believes that there are, that the, that the Ripper killings were done by two different people. That's the current stance that Scotland Yard has on the Jack the Ripper killing. So my theory is that H.H. H. Holmes went over there. He's an opportunist. He saw that these killings went on. He saw the, the, the Polly Nichols killing. He saw the Andy Chapman killing. And he was like, maybe I can get on this. Maybe he tries to kill uh, Long Liz and somebody walks in on him. And then he goes right over to Catherine Eddowes and kills Catherine Eddowes. And the reason that I think that adds up is because in the letter that, in the letter that he wrote, it says that he was going to cut off her ear and Catherine Eddowes did have an ear cut off. So I think H.H. H. Holmes that's a fun killed that could two people and, and then basically got out of town and was like, I'm out. And they're just going to all blame all this on Jack the, Rip, the Ripper situation. And I think it's, I think it's uh, definitely a compelling theory. No, you're absolutely right. There was also, they took 13 of the eyewitness accounts, which, um, which they found credible. There were more eyewitness accounts, but they took the 13 most credible and they sent it into, I think it was the university of Michigan to have them, use their computer program to come up with a composite by mixing all of these um, these witness accounts of who Jack the Ripper was and what he looked like. And it would basically take all of these accounts and come up with a computer-generated image of what Jack the Ripper looked like. And this image was an absolute spitting image of H.H. Holmes. Again, it was a white guy with a mustache. That was pretty much all of Britain at the time. Yeah. But according to, two my, my yeah, according to two retired FBI agents that their job was doing this kind of stuff, profiling and everything. They said that they had never in their entire careers seen a more dead-on match than H.H. Holmes to Jack the Ripper. So you had that. You had the handwriting. He was he was most likely in England. I mean, there's not a shred of evidence that he was in the United States during the time of these killings. And there is plenty more evidence that he was over there as well. Uh, for one, he had talked about doing that for a long time. For two, he sent a letter to his lawyer while he was apparently over there that said it is much easier to get lost in London or something along those lines, or it's uh, harder to be found while in London or something. So it's believed that he was in the Whitechapel or he was at least in London, if not the East end or the Whitechapel area during the times of the killing. He obviously is a man who kills. I mean, he wasn't shy to do that. So he was a murderer. He was a serial killer. He was probably in Whitechapel at the time. And he probably, he, you almost definitely wrote at least uh, one or two of the Dear Boss letters. I mean, that is solid, solid evidence. I mean, you're 97% match pretty much on the handwriting. So at minimum, he wrote a letter, probably killed one or two. I think I'm with you, Dave. I don't think he killed all of them, but I think he could have killed one or two. But the other thing is, in the, the, the case against it is, for one, it's a stretch, right? 
it, sure. it just you had an american serial killer that okay well what if he also did this one it just seems like a reach and the other thing is when he was in america he had a reason that he would kill right he was doing it to harvest organs although he did take organs. yeah if you look at most of the suspects and you look at most of the evidence the craziest thing is a lot of people completely dismiss the hh holmes things because they say it's just too much of a reach it's just too it's too too convenient but the actual evidence that you have here is stronger than i think the vast majority of this of the suspects the handwriting match the profile it seems too convenient it seems like it's a stronger case than actually a lot of these favored suspects in the case i actually kind of like the idea of hh holmes again it feels like a reach and it, it's, it feels like a reach because it's like oh well hh holmes is this other serial killer so it's like what are the odds that one major serial killer would be two major serial killers better than if it wasn't a serial killer because he's killing people mm -hmm. yeah i mean, I mean again, there, there are theories that jack the ripper was also there was a torso murderer that started happening right around the same time as the jack the ripper killings and they think that jack the ripper could have had something to do with that as well so to your point there is potential for one serial killer to actually be two serial killers yeah and hh holmes well he was convicted of however many i think maybe maybe 10 murders but confessed to killing hundreds of people so yeah, maybe yeah. he wasn't i mean he was also a liar and uh and a um a fraudster but a charlatan but, yeah. a charlatan but uh the other suspect on touch on it's just yeah. it's just really hard for hh holmes to be the killer when charles lechmer is the killer is what i would say we have to talk about the one that i kind of wrapped up the story with which if this journal and if this watch are actually legitimate then it is a hundred percent michael barrett I think it's bullshit. I think the I think the journal was fake in the main two two main reasons. Number one is the guy who came forward with it eventually said it was fake, and then he changed the story, and then he changed the story again. Back him coming out like six times. Yeah, him coming out once and saying it was fake is enough for me to be like, all right, ah, throw this whole theory out the window. But I do wonder if it's kind of like the Dybbuk box thing. And for those who didn't listen to the Dybbuk box episode, it was a side content episode. The guy who originally came up with the Dybbuk box story stood by his story for years and then eventually people started making money off of it like the guy that ended up with the box ended up selling it to hollywood or sold the story to hollywood made a whole bunch of money off it or wrote books about it or whatever i felt like then he came out and said the story was fake and for us that whole timeline we went over that whole thing in that episode was kind of like sounds like he might have just been jealous he might have been jealous that someone else is making money off it so he's like you know what it's fake and maybe that was what happened and i wondered if this was kind of the situation here where maybe somebody, you know, there was a book written about it. Maybe he got cut out of the deal or something like that. So then he came forward and said it was fake, whatever. Anyways, the whole watch thing being tied to this is where really it has to be the most convenient thing to come forward because it wasn't the same guy who brought the watch forward. Like, oh, look, I also have this. It was some random collector who had nothing to do with it, who had found the inscriptions inside this watch and said, Jay Maybrick, who the hell is that? This makes no sense. And then once they found out about this diary, they're like, holy shit, this has Jay Maybrick's name. It says, I am Jack. And it's got the initials of not only the canonical five, but it also had two other victims initials in, inscribed on this thing. So they had this, they had this thing tested. So they had the watch tested and uh, there was two different colleges that had tested it out. And their findings were that the, the scratchings were not fresh. So if they were fresh, then it would be like, yeah, obviously you just scratch this into the watch to have another piece of evidence for this thing the guy with the journal probably paid you off or whatever but they found that these scratch these engravings were at least decades old and they could have gone all the way back to the time of the killings they also found um 
microscopic pieces of copper or something that was used to inscribe it. So this coming from a completely different source is a, it would have to be like a, a miracle of a coincidence for this to also be legitimate. Also, the journal has, as far as I understand, and maybe something changed recently, but I watched a whole documentary on it and a whole bunch of stuff on this thing. It has withstood forensic investigations where they did a bunch of forensic tests on this. The notebook dates back to the Victorian era. So that checks out. The ink checks out as being used at the time. And your average, it would take like a scientist to come up with, to concoct the same kind of chemicals together to create the same kind of ink that was used to pass under a microscope as being from that era. So they haven't been able to debunk it forensically. I still think it's probably not true. And I think most ripperologists and, you know, Rob's the only ripperologist among us, but That's I think right. most of them think that this, this journal was probably bullshit and it was just made up by this guy. And then the other piece of the other piece that I find weird is that there was a whole chunk of pages that were ripped out. So I think this guy bought this journal, some random journal, found a bunch of blank pages at the end, ripped out all the pages that had nothing to do with Jack the Ripper, wrote it in his own thing. And uh, it just happened to stand up against forensic testing. And the other, the other problem, massive problem with the story is he never really had a good story on how he ended up with this journal. His story was basically like some random drunk guy from a pub gave it to him one day. That's not a very good origin story for this journal. <laughs> so no, right, he said, right. he said he kept going back to this guy was his friend or something like that. He kept going back. He's like, Hey, where'd you get it? Where'd you get it? Where'd you get it? And the guy died. So he just never found out where this guy got this alleged journal. Again, if it is legitimate, and it has, it's crazy because it stood, stood up against forensic tests as far as I know. If it's legitimate, then this is a, a thousand percent, a thousand percent Jack the Ripper. If the watch is legitimate, I don't understand how these two things ended up being connected if they're not authentic. So again, my gut tells me it's bullshit, but if it, if the, if these things are legitimate, then you have your Ripper. So I felt like it had to at least be mentioned. There's a whole book written about it as well. You can go check that out. Yeah, it is an interesting one. It is interesting just hearing, especially in flip-flopping. The watch is the compelling part to me, though, like of all Mm -hmm. of it. So, Yeah, the documentary is interesting. I I kind of forgot, but there was like two other things that that were like impossible to debunk. So again, I I had mentioned that like it had to have either been written at that time or after 1987. I think there was a big information dump after 1987, but the whole... um, there, there There was one piece inside that journal where he had written that the only thing that he had found on one of the victims was an empty tin can. And this had not been in any of the police reports. And then basically they had, they had found it archived. So if it was written at in like 1988 or whatever, I mean, 1888, then it had to have been from the killer or someone that was at the crime scene. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much it. There's a, there's a long, no, well, that's not pretty much it, but that's like what we're going to get into. Cause there's like a hundred other suspects for Jack the Ripper. And it, it honestly, we probably it's probably someone that's not even a suspect it was just probably some random dude that was never a suspect and he probably moved or he did get locked up or he died or something like that it was probably chief warren on that fake vacation he took he's on vacation <laughs> yeah he had a doctor's notes come on the doctor said he had to take this vacation because he was yeah, stressed. he hope. said if you need he said if you need another month i'll give you another it was probably the 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 doctor for the Royal family, right? No, he's like, I got this doctor's note right here. It's this doctor's note from Dr. H.H. H. Holmes. <laughs> oh. We solved it. It was Johnny Depp. 
So <laughs> right. I don't think we can go much longer on this. I, I do appreciate no. everyone who has stuck around. Most of you have, and uh, it's it's a long one. We could go all day on about this. I mean, there's plenty of podcasts that did three, four, five part ones. Yeah. yeah. Let's thank our patrons and get out of here. We'll do our reviews next week. Okay. Very good. So for our VIPs, we have... Allison V, Jeannie R, Lisa J, Mike Oubliette, Blake, Oubliette. Mom and Pops W, Peach Smoothie, Robert H, Demon King, Inspires Gaming. Thank you guys so much for being VIPs. Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper, dude. Uh, for, <laughs> oh, wait. No, we'll do that later. Uh, for Warren's <laughs> Words, we have 32DRC, Amby Rose, Anna C, Chris C, Donnie N, Elizabeth Young, Lily, Jake V, Janice G, Matthew T, Papa Squatch, Rachel B, Sarah Cook, Stephanie A, Sydney B, and those are the Warren's Wars. Thank you much for the Ghost Pirate Mafia. We have Al Capone, Anthony T, Brandon W, Brandon B, Captain McSlugs, Kath Q, Cody G, Hooska, Hooska, Castle. I changed my lights. Uh, Huggy Bear, Joe R, Kiralee J, Mark M, Mariah M, Paul from St. Louis, Sam from Nepal, Sarah R, Scotty L, Solar Flare, Soph, Hooper, Swanee, and the other Rachel B. Thank you so much for as little as $3 a month. You can be part of this list. Shout out to everyone who gifted memberships on YouTube today. $1 a month will get you the emotes as well as some exclusive content on YouTube. Thank you guys so much. This has been a long one and it's a fun one. And I feel like I'm going to punch myself in the face for not getting to a lot of the things I wanted to get to on this one, but how much longer can we go? So it's so much. So yeah, maybe we'll do a, do a live hang at some point and talk more about Jack the Ripper. Maybe we'll get any more theories in the movie review. <laughs> yeah, Maybe. so yeah, Friday we're gonna drop a From Hell movie review, the uh, the documentary <laughs> starring Johnny Depp. Um, yeah, it's a fun one. So I think that'll pretty much do it, gentlemen. Anything else? That's oh, it for me. Just one more thing, boys. Jack, Jack the Ripper. Ripper.